This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Loris, and today we're discussing the 2019 Brian De Palma film, Domino. So you were there when he was attacked? I was upstairs in the crime scene. This was down on the fourth floor with the suspect. We just apprehended a man on Tetris Street. Are you Farouk Harris? So today I would like to talk about a 2019 film, something that kind of coasted under the radar and I think mostly had been picked up by foreign markets and thus relegated to the direct-to-DVD bin or direct-to-streaming or Redbox, whatever your preference nowadays. A film called Domino that is directed by the classic director, one of the best directors of the 1970s and 80s, Brian De Palma. He put this movie out, and apparently it was a bit of a struggle because it had finished filming in 2017, and I remember reading an article from roughly a year ago where he was talking about the pained process that was making this movie. He had never encountered such uh, divisiveness and uh, so many roadblocks when trying to get a film made than he did with the producers who had backed this movie. And I'll tell you what, when watching this movie, the composition of it, 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 it feels like it was constructed by somebody who is not a filmmaker. So the company that is behind it, Saban Films. Saban, which can best be remembered as the logo in front of the Power Rangers TV show when you were a kid, may be culpable in making this film a mess. Uh, now, they also have Kevin Smith's latest film. I guess he had his True North trilogy uh, scrapped because that last one, Yoga Hosers, was a complete disaster. There was nothing amusing about it whatsoever. He was going to end it with Moose Jaws, which was going to be an unauthorized remake of Jaws, but with a moose. Now he's doing Jay and Silent Bob's reboot. Going back to the well. That's always great, right? When we have a comedy film that has a, a sequel 20 years later, Dumb and Dumber 2, Anchorman 2. Yeah, there's a great collection there of Movies that came out way too late and lost their appeal, lost their funny. Uh, you know, they have Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in that movie, too. So I don't know whether to feel happy for Kevin Smith or really depressed for those two. Anyhow, 2019, I had initially predicted it to be a great year for film. And that, generally speaking, hasn't hasn't quite been the case, at least for the summer. The summer has been underwhelming to say the least. I think we had a strong start to the year with the likes of the standoff at Sparrow Creek and uh, extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile, and also Lords of Chaos, even though there were aspects of that movie that felt like a made-for-TV film, like you were, you would tune into Lifetime in the late 90s, and that might be on. But for the most part, I think it's a good movie. I think you can be kind of shitty in some ways, technically speaking, or, or have rough acting at parts and still be a good movie if it's entertaining and has rewatchability to it. I'm straying from the point here. Domino contributes to this 
this uh, slog that we're currently in for the summer. And, you know, it's not alone. I will say that this movie is a lot better than many of the blockbusters that I've seen this year. I, I, I rank it above uh, the likes of uh, Always Be My Maybe, the Netflix rom-com. How about that? That, I think, was only made because they had a contract with Ali Wong that said, you have to do eight things for us. And it could be eight movies or it could be a stand-up special or whatever you want. Adam Sandler's in a similar deal, which is how he got Paul Thomas Anderson to direct his Netflix stand-up special. But you know, there, there haven't been great films, by and large, released from roughly June onward. And I think we're going to continue in that slump until Oscar season. And if we're lucky, if we're lucky, the films that are nominated for Oscars will actually be good this year. But I'm not very hopeful of that. And I don't think you should be either. So here's a little bit of backstory on how I came to watch this film. Because just looking at the poster art where you have that generic looking actor from Game of Thrones. And then it's like a, ooh, it's a, you know, you've got action in the background. or You've got a blur here. Wow. You know, it looks like a 38-year-old Norwegian man who hates his life designed that poster. And I knew from the jump that this was probably going to be an instance of, well, we have a great director who has definitely fallen off from where they used to be, John Carpenter Syndrome. And I was listening to the Brad Easton Ellis podcast. I'm hooked up to his Patreon. I pay for the episodes. On his most recent episode at the time of this recording, he had said that Domino turned out to be much more watchable than he was anticipating, that it turned out to be a visually... A good-looking movie. You know, I should have known something was up when he also said that Toy Story 4 was the best theatrical experience he had had this year. But I trust Brett. I trust his taste for the most part. And I love Brian De Palma. I, I just got off of a Brian De Palma kick uh, where I had watched the bulk of his movies from the late 70s to the early 90s. So I thought, you know what? Why not? Why not? Why not give this movie a shot? It might surprise you. It did not surprise me. Here is something that did surprise me, though, and this is the last thing I'll say about Brett Easton Ellis and his taste in his podcast. He thought this movie was better or more compelling than Knife and Heart, a French horror film released this year that is a throwback to Giallo movies of the 70s about a gay porn set and a series of murders. And his central complaint about that movie, which is a very good movie, it's it's extremely stunning. It's one of the best shot things I've seen this year, save for Nicholas Winding Refn's Too Old to Die Young. I think that might be the most cinematic uh, piece of content that is out there currently. Uh, his central complaint with this movie, Knife and Heart, was that they did not accurately replicate the look of gay clubs during the 1970s. I think he said something along the lines of, God, how haven't you been to a gay club in the 70s? Well, no. Most of us have not been, Brad. But regardless, we get to talk about Domino and how it's truly a disaster on all ends with some flashes of brilliance to it. Because, again, you're, you're, you have an auteur. You have somebody who is a cinematic genius 
handling this film. So even if someone fucking takes a, uh, a cleaver and goes whack, 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 whack to that, that beautiful salmon that's full and whole, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, a lot of inedible fucked up little pieces of fish lying around, but you're also going to have some delicious sushi in some parts. That's a terrible analogy. That's an awful... Anyway, Domino stars Nikolaj Koster-Waldau of Game of Thrones. Guy Pierce, who unfortunately sold all of his credibility as an actor around 2013 or so. And it's about two detectives who are uh, exploring some kind of uh, incident that occurs, and one of the detectives gets killed by this uh, a man who has had his father beheaded by ISIS, and then Nikolaj, his character, Christian, is trying to seek revenge for his slain partner by tracking this guy down, but the guy happens to have ties to the CIA, and they're using him as an assassin, and it's really just stupid. It's it's very... It's not convoluted. It's just so dumb. I, I don't know who is funding these movies. You get a lot of films just like this that are made in Europe that have one or two notable actors like like a Guy Pierce or or the movie that comes to mind in comparison to this is The Dying of the Light, which was originally Dark by Paul Schrader, executive produced by Nicholas Winding Refn, who I mentioned only a little bit ago. That starred Nicholas Cage and Anton Yelchin. And it was kind of a similar situation where they have a bunch of cheaply made sets and they have these actors and it's like, oh, we have to stop a terrorist. We, and then that's like the whole deal of the movie. And it's so painfully dull. I, I don't know who is putting money into these and how they're getting money out of them, but it's working. They figured out something that I have not figured out because we have a million of these movies. So anyhow, yes, I have to report that in the case of Brian De Palma, and maybe this film isn't fair because, as I had mentioned before, there was a lot of studio producer tinkering. It seems to be a case of this was a once great filmmaker who has undeniably fallen off a John Carpenter syndrome where, you know, you make a string of great films. And I've talked about this before where I think that any great modern artist has a span of approximately eight years that define their careers. And John Carpenter's was probably from 78 to 86, or may, or actually it might, it might even be post-Halloween. It might just be in the 80s where we have the thing and we end around the time of they live. And everything after that can be skipped. You know, it's not really worth noting. You know, you don't need to see Snake Plissken riding a surfboard in front of a blue screen. You don't have to have Mark Hamill playing a baseball player who gets his eye knocked out. Don't even get me started on Ghosts of Mars. So Brian De Palma, I think he had probably peaked in the mid to late 80s. And now we're, we're taking a look at his, his, his filmmaking skills 35 years after the fact. And there is a jarring difference. And I honestly, I, here's my assumption here. This is what this is how I feel about this. I think the producers probably cut it down because the movie was dull, and you can tell that there isn't as much care for the visual theatrics 
of the movie compared to some of his earlier films. Just generally speaking, there's no way to get around that. There's no way to uh, damage that unless you clip it all out entirely. So it's impossible. And that speaks to Brian De Palma's skills as a director. What I discovered with this film is something interesting. Now, I need to preface in saying that this movie had been significantly cut down from where it originally landed. And that was around somewhere between 2 hours and 30 minutes to 3 hours. It was a very long movie. The movie that you can find on Amazon right now is 89 minutes, which is not even an hour and a half. It's quite the cut. They removed uh, perhaps almost a majority of this movie. There is something interesting going on with this movie because in one of the opening segments where Christian and his partner are off uh, investigating... Some, some call that came in where there was a disturbance in an apartment building and they discover this assailant who had murdered undercover agents working with ISIS. His father, uh, the murderer's uh, father, uh, was decapitated by members of Daesh. And he leaves, Christian leaves this man alone with his partner. He left his gun behind at his apartment. And the result is his partner gets his throat slashed, winds up in a coma, and later dies. This whole sequence of events is very well shot, and it reminds the viewer of that classic Brian De Palma. He employs some of his visual tactics that he did in the 1970s and 80s. We've got the split diopter. I might have mentioned that before. If I didn't, this is the first time you're hearing it, and I am making a fool of myself. But it is a. It seems like Brian De Palma racked his brain together for this shoot, and he is a seventy-eight-year-old man. I mean, there, there's no way around it. He's not going to be in the same. Uh, he's not going to be of the same mental capacity that he was when he was in his thirties and forties, and when he really peaked as a director. So it seemed like something called back to him here, and he was able to execute that properly. And then the 65-some-odd minutes that follows that is so boring, and it's tiresome. And I actually picked up something interesting here as a filmmaker that should be common sense. But when you reuse locations, right, that becomes tiresome to the viewer, especially if you do not change the angles, and there is a, a scene where Guy Pierce, who works for the CIA, his character is interrogating the murderer who killed Christian's partner and the members of ISIS. And then we return to this same interrogation location and the table that he's sitting at. And it's almost as if once the actors fil- finished filming this scene the first time, they called cut. Everybody went to their dressing rooms, changed into their wardrobe for the later scene returned, and they left the camera in place. It's all stationary. It's so boring, and it looks more like a play than a movie. And that doesn't mesh with the rest of the film. So I I, I don't understand what kind of lazy-brained thinking happened to be abundant here. Maybe Brian De Palma had his AD or, or, or whoever handle some of these scenes. I don't know. But it's such a stark contrast. But then we get to the end of the movie where 
Guy Pierce's character hands over the murderer to Christian in a deal. And this scene is well shot. There's great cinematography, great lighting. Now, granted, the dialogue is terrible. Guy Pierce has some hokey line like, oh, well, we read your emails and we know everything you're up to. It's some corny shit. It's awful. But it looks splendid. It lo- it, it lo- again, it looks like that classic De Palma texture. And, and, and it's like, did he just fall? Did he take a long nap between the beginning and end of this movie? It's it's remarkable. It truly is. Unfortunately, it might just be that Brian De Palma is completely past his prime and he doesn't have one last good film in him. I look at a director like Spike Lee, for example. We talked about Black Klansman in the early days of this show. Spike Lee was on a path that was going to mirror Brian De Palma's in terms of irrelevance. He was going to just continue to decline in quality as a filmmaker. He had made... Miracle at St. Anna, Old Boy, She Hate Me, which is one of the worst films anyone could ever watch. And then something something bizarre happened with Spike Lee's trajectory that does not typically happen with directors, where he did Chirac, and Chirac is not a good movie. And it was preceded by The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which again is another atrocious film. Really awful. People like to People like to compliment that or, or, or cite that as a good movie because it's a remake of Ganja and Hess and it has Rami Malek in it. No, it's 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 a it's a heaping pile of uh, I don't like to say cuss words on this show, you know, but it's it's you know, and uh, you know you you have Chirac again, not a good movie at all. But Amazon put some money behind Spike Lee, so he was able to do this, and there was a notable shift. In the overall quality. That movie falls apart midway through, and it, it's tonally schizophrenic, but it's something similar to that old school spike, like Mo Better Blues, Do the Right Thing, uh, the original She's Gotta Have It. Netflix then puts money in the spike for him to direct season one of She's Gotta Have It. And even though it is this social justice drivel, uh, it's Okay, it's fine. If you like Spike Lee, you'll probably like that. It has all like the hallmark dopey whatever that you can find in much of his dialogue. It's all very on the nose. And a lot of it is just plain cringe. But again, if you like Spike Lee, you'll probably like that. I haven't seen season two, so I can't speak for that. And then finally, Spike gets some money. And perhaps more importantly... He has a collaborator in Jordan Peele who can kind of keep him in check, right? Or or given that Jordan Peele's name is on that, that's a greater incentive for the studio to make a more cohesive film with Black Klansman. And that wound up being the best Spike Lee film since, God, maybe uh, maybe he got game, you know? And that, that that's, that's over 20 years ago. Brian De Palma, it could just be too late for him. 78 years old. It's 2019. It's a long, long, long ways away from where he began. I would like to see him work with some talented actors, get some people on board who can help guide him as a director at this point in his career. I know they did that with Frank Miller over at DC Comics. They they brought in some veteran DC writers and artists to kind of keep him on a straight path. 
since the Dark Knight Strikes Again was, again, uh, a total mess. Although I enjoyed it. I thought that was an interesting uh, creative venture. But Domino, it's not unwatchable. It will make you want to take a nap. It's not interesting. If you are desperate for some new Brian De Palma, I suppose you you could check it out. But honestly, there are many other films that are worth your time that have the spirit encapsulated in many of his films that trump this any day of the week. Thanks for tuning into this bonus episode of Movies, a podcast about the active cinema. If you would like to help contribute to this operation, it, well, you can contribute in a number of ways. First, you could raise your pledge. If you're only paying a dollar right now, you could do five. If you're doing five, you could do ten. That's all up to you. That's if you can afford it. Alternatively, we have merch on sale. I released a limited edition theatrical tee of Comfort Systems because Comfort Systems got a theatrical screening recently thanks to the Boston Short Film Festival. We got accepted into that, and they had screened it at the Somerville Theater. That was very exciting, very cool experience. And I do have this limited run tee. We brought it back out because we have extras. And uh, episode four is going to drop soon of the series. So we're going to wind up pulling that sometime after that is out to the public. There are also some comfort system hoodies, I believe that are still in stock and those are top quality. It's not this Teespring shit where, you know, you just have a, a person mindlessly signing up for one of these websites, not tasting the materials. It's quality stuff. And I highly recommend you purchase it. Buying things like that helps essentially just as much as being a patron and you're getting something physical out of it, which is always cool. I'm all about that physical media, physical shirts. I don't know what the alternative to that would be. But again, I'm very appreciative of all the help that you guys have done to ensure that we have a steady ship here. If you guys read that long post that I just put up on Patreon uh, yesterday, then you already know that we have some big ideas in mind, and I haven't even covered half of it okay uh next episode of movies we have nicholas joroff aka the wizard of cause he's a political commentator and actor or talking about brian de palma's uh, more triumphant work casualties of war starring michael j fox and sean penn we also did an extra hour of audio that will be released as a bonus episode didn't really talk about movies just talked about very disposable things like youtube videos and culture so stay tuned for that. I think it was an excellent talk. I enjoyed uh, catching up with Nick and conversing about all of these things. He, you, his, his biggest strength, one of his biggest strengths, is his ability to just carry on, to just talk and talk and talk and talk. And he is a very uh, interesting speaker to listen to, in my opinion. So I hope you guys enjoy that episode. And that's about it. Thank you for tuning in. Once again, I'm going to try to do more of these bonus episodes. And in the meantime, I've been Low Res. See you next time.